Bruchem Abayim to the second shear in the series about Reb Sadi going about the Amunus Vedeus. In the first shear, we studied the introduction to Amunus Vedeus and the first essay. The first essay taught that the world was brought into existence after first not existing. That is at the center of Reb Sadi going that is theology. From there, we're going to move on to the second Maimah, which is now going to get back to God and say, well, if the world came into existence after not existing, what or who is it that brought it into existence? So this second Maimah is about Achdos Hashem, that Hashem is one. And that's what we can talk about, what can we understand and what can we say about the nature of God? How do we perceive HaKadosh Baruch Hu? The third Maimah and the fourth Maimah are also going to hopefully cover in today's Lecture. The third mimer is about mitzvahs, tzivoy and azhara. Why is there a need for the Torah? What is the function of the Torah? And whether the Torah or that of the Torah is eternal and proofs thereof. Um, and of, and relatedly about the, the Nevi'im that are sent to teach us the Torah. And the fourth mimer is about man's nature and his free will, his ability to either obey or disobey. So these are, of course, topics of major importance and great interest. So we begin with the second Maimer. That the one who brought everything into reality is one. Now that we know that everything existed after not existing, now we can go back and say, well, what brought it all to exist? And this Maimer is obviously of utmost importance. At one point, um, Rav Sadigoyen considers, calls this the basis of the whole book in its axis. The unity of God. See, we started talking about the world in the first Maimer, and now we get to God, and that's very important. That's Absadigun's approach. We start from the Muchash, we start from the sensory, and we work backwards. And that's how he begins this Maimer, and he says the following idea. He says that the beginning of knowledge is gross, it's gas, and the end of knowledge is subtle. And at the end of knowledge, The point of knowledge is to bring you to a concept after which there's no other concept. And that a person, the steps of knowledge are that a person raises himself one level over to the other, and each darga, each level of knowledge that he reaches to is going to be more subtle than the previous one, till his final level of knowledge is going to be the most subtle of all concepts. And when a person reaches that subtlety, he knows that that's what he was looking for because that's the nature of knowledge. And he, he sets this out in, a, in his introduction, and now he's going, and then he's going to explain all these points. And he says, once a person reaches this point where he knows the matter of the greatest subtlety, he can't try to understand the subtle matter in a gross way, because then you're going back to where you started. The whole purpose of knowledge is to abstract from the gross to the fine, to the refined, to the subtle. And then he's going to explain, then he explains... Um, how he bases all these ideas, these, these, these steps of thought, and he proves them. He says the following. He says, why do I say that the beginning of all knowledge is gross? Because it starts from sensory perception. That's what we start with. And sensory perception, no one person is greater than the other. And in fact, no person is even greater than an animal in this regard. So you start with sensory perception, you start with things that you sense, and then you extrapolate and you say, wait, all these things that I sense have mikrim, have accidents. That means things that are incidental. Something is, you could have a thing which is sometimes 
white and sometimes black. And then you could think that every, the thing that you sense has a concept of quantity, has space, has time. So you take the first thing, your first sense you have is a sensory perception, and then eventually you extrapolate and you get finer, you get conceptual in the way you think about any particular item. And the, eventually you extrapolate till you're the most um, abstract way of thinking about the thing. And that's why he says the final end of, of knowledge is abstraction. That means, you, again, basically in a nutshell, the way to think about it is you take a thing that you sense and you start thinking about what is it, what are its characters, what are its laws of nature, we might say. And that's, of course, more abstract and subtle than the thing itself that you sensed. And then he says, eventually you reach an end to this. Why do you say you eventually reach an end? Because a person is limited. A person is a body, therefore he's limited. So therefore his knowledge also has to be limited, has to reach an end. Secondly, unless knowledge would have an end, you would never be able to have knowledge. Knowledge has to be closed, a closed system. So there is an end to knowledge. Um, and thirdly, that from which all knowledge comes, which is senses itself has a, is finite. And therefore, knowledge which comes from senses also must be finite. A person raises himself through knowledge from one level to the next because he starts with a base. And on that base, he builds further knowledge. And as he said earlier, the highest level of knowledge is the most subtle. And he gives a very example, example for that. He says, if you look at snow, snow looks like stones. And then you think, you think about it, you realize it's actually made out of water. And you start thinking about the water. Where did that water come from? It comes from the clouds. And then there has to be a cause for those clouds. And that, that cause is um, more subtle than the fog, which raised and turned into water that eventually turned into snow. So basically, the, last, the, the final thing that we sense is the most gross. And then we extrapolate to things that are finer and finer. If you want that the final thing that you understand is as gross as the previous thing, then you're not getting anywhere. So then Ramsadi Goyen says, what am I getting at with all this? He says, what happens is, when you talk about a Kodesh Baruch some people say, well, I don't see him. Or some people say, well, it's too deep for me. And some people say, well, maybe there's something to know beyond HaKadosh Baruch And some people say, well, let's think about him as a body. Some people say he actually is a body, but, or if he's not actually a body, they'll say that he has the quantity or qualities of a body, which we'll get to, or time or space. And he says, basically, what they're doing is they're not really being faithful to the pursuit of knowledge, because the pursuit of knowledge is to reach the most abstract thing at the end. And understanding that God is the most subtle is the knowledge of God that we're looking for. Finding him to be the most dark matter, the most um, fine matter of any concept that we can have in our mind is its true essence. And people who can only believe what they sense are just incapable of having true knowledge. So it's a very interesting concept that Rabbi Sadi is giving us, which is that HaKadosh Baruch is the end. God is the end of all knowledge. It's the final step of all knowledge. And as always, he brings um, Sukkim for this. Okay. So eventually we reach a, a, a god who is the most adin mikol adin muflo mikol muflo most wondrous the most subtle and also chazak mikol chazak na'ala mikol na'ala until we can't even understand what he is but of course we're going to work on that today 
Now, one final point in this matter, he says, perhaps a person could consider that there's something to know beyond God. So he says an amazing point. He says, the whole th way we know things is through bodies, right? That's the point that we've been discussing. Sadiqan holds all knowledge starts from sense perception. So once we get to something that's beyond a body or something that's not inherent or, or mediated through a body, there's nothing to know after that. Basically, what he's saying is we use the physical world to know and to prove that there's something beyond. And that's where our, not, that's where our knowledge ends. Now he says like this. He says, why is this... Um, why am I talking so much about this and why does it take so much work? He says, for two reasons. Because, since it's a very important matter, it's worth discussing. And because there are many people that have a lot to say about this and debate this, therefore I have to demonstrate how they're wrong. Okay. And now Abzadigon goes into the matter of what God is. And this brings us to Parak Aleph of this Mimer. He says, the Nevi'im tell us that God is Echad, is one. Chai, alive, yochel, capable, chochem. Ain There's nothing like, nothing like his actions. The Nevi'im told us this, asserted this, and they proved it because they did miracles. And we accepted it until we proved it through Ian. Remember, this is what the going holds, that we accept things at first because the Nevi'im tell it to us and they do miracles. And then we use our minds to support it. And of course, he brings looking for all these things. Shemayi, Hashem, Lekim, Lekim, Echad, etc., etc. How do we know Hashem is Chai? Kola, Lekim, Chaim. How do we know he's yochel? And so on and so forth. Okay, that's how he did, always builds his ideas, through using Pesukim from Tanakh. And then after we know these six things in the Nevi'im, we prove it by the Ian, and we find that indeed, as the Nevi'im say, so it is. So it is in fact the case. Those that argue on this, says Rupsadi Goyim, do one of two things. Either they compare God to the rest of creation, to his creatures, or because they see words in the Pesukim, they see words in the Torah that seem to be indicating that God is a guf, and they believe he's a guf, but we're going to show that that's not the case. Okay, so let's start with the beginning. So God is one. How do we know God is one? It says upside going because if God made everything, and everything is plural, it must be that God is one, because he can't be of the same sort of what he made. Interesting and deep argument that requires thought. Additionally, says upside going how do we know there's a God? Because the world has to have come to existence from something. Well, that only proves that there's one God. There's no need, logically, to posit a second God. And that brings us now to the second parak. Second parak, he talks about um, other proofs that God is one. And specifically against the argument that people say that there's two forces. And it's to go in here, goes into Narichas. He says, why do people say there are two forces? Because they believe that everything is good and bad, and therefore there has to be some duality in terms of um, the principles that cause all existence. And to that, Rabbi Goyen says, well, um, then you can argue that there are five senses, or you can argue that there are seven principles of, 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 of color. Basically, he goes through a list of all sorts of different ways to categorize things, and says, if you argue that reality is broken up into two, then you could argue that it's seven, you could argue that it's four natures. You can argue it's the ten categories, uh, six types of motion, seven types of quantity, three types of time, so on and so forth. And he argues further that if there would be two, then how would they get along? If each of them want to do something um, and they need the other one to 
work with them, then neither of them are really capable, etc., those kinds of arguments. So these prove then that Enon Mavadoi and that God is indeed one. And then Paragimel, Sadigon goes into the question, how can we in fact say God is one? The old question, why does Tanakh give Hashem two different names, Hashem and Elohim? And he says like this, he says that sometimes you can have one person having two names, like Yubal, who's also called Gedoin. And since the Pasuk says that's one of the same person, the Pasuk could switch off, sometimes calling him Yubal, sometimes calling him Gedoin. Therefore, since there's another Pasuk that says Hashem Hu Elohim, indicating that Hashem and Elohim are one and the same, there's no problem for the Torah to sometimes use Hashem and sometimes Elohim. So you see, Ibsad Yigoyen treats the whole Tanakh as one unit, and as long as somewhere in Tanakh it makes clear that Hashem is Elohim, then the rest of Tanakh can sometimes say Hashem, sometimes say Elohim, and one thing can have more than one name. And then in general, Ibsad Yigoyen says the point that anything you find in the Psukim, or in the language of us, the monotheists, that describes God in a way that um, it contradicts true Iyun. It must have a different meaning that the Medactikim can find if they look for it. But this book doesn't have to deal with every single word and show how it could be used um, Allah and not to be literal. And for that, he refers us to his Targum on the Torah to dealing with a lot of the Psukim that, that are Shreh. And this brings us to Paragdalid. Paragdalid talks about the problem of Ta'arim. Ta'arim means the attributes of God. How can we talk about God as having various attributes if God is truly one without being composite? So he talks about the following idea. He says like this. He says, we know that God is Chai Yochel Chochem. We know that he's alive. We know that he's, this is to prove the principles that the Nevi'im taught us, that God is Chai Yochel Chochem. How do we know that that's the case? Because we see God created everything. And if God created everything, he's obviously Yochel. You can't be do something unless you have power. You can't have power unless you're alive. You can't do something so perfect as the universe is unless you're a chacha. Okay. Now, all these concepts about God, how do we know all of them? Because we know them through creation. Right? We know that God is alive. We know that he's capable. We know that he's wise all by the fact that he created. Now, we really know one thing about God that he created the world. And that thing, the fact that he created the world, indicates three different things. Those three different things, said Ibsad Yigoyen, really all revolve around the fact that God created the world. The reason why we talk about, talk about them as being three different things, God being wise, God being powerful, and God being alive, is because we don't have a word that will indicate all three of them. To make up a word would be meaningless. Because in our world that we're familiar with, wisdom, power, and life are three different things. In God, they're all one, because God doesn't have three parts of him that are different attributes. They're really all one idea of God, which contains all these three things. When we talk about God as being Chai, Yochel, and Chacham, all we mean is that he's an Oise, that he's a maker. He's created the world, the world is his that he made. And therefore that indicates Chai, Yochel, and Chacham, but really those things are really unified in one. And therefore, the Pesukim say Hashem Echad, an Enoid Milvad. Then in Perikei is Meirech about the Trinity. The Christians believe that God has three components. So he says those, the Hamoin of the Christians, the simple Christians believe, 
that God is actually Megushim, actually corporeal, and he's not going to deal with them. The wise ones believe that, that God is a trinity of three parts, and they and they get into this in a deep way. Um, and this Upsadi going says, um, even though they're trying to avoid corporeality, and since God is not a guf, the only thing that can have components is a guf, and therefore they're ultimately believing that God is a guf. Which, says Upsadi going all comes from being not knowing the ways of proof. If a person doesn't know the ways of proof, the ways of thinking, he's going to make these kinds of errors, and you have to learn how to think in order to avoid um, these kinds of errors. By human beings, says Upsadi going the fact that a man, let's say, has knowledge is something separate from the man, because he sometimes has knowledge, sometimes doesn't. But God who always has knowledge, the knowledge is his essence. God is always alive, the life is his essence. And the same thing regarding God's power. Only in, in, regarding humans or like, that sometimes do and sometimes have those qualities, there we could say it's not part of God's essence. If you're going to say there's actually three different parts to God, because he's Chai, Yochel, and Chacham, says Upsadi Goyen, then you should, there's other parts of God too, you can say that he's Raya and um, Shemeya, etc. So why stop at three? Therefore, says Upsadi Goyen, they're only saying this to support their, this idea that they had, but it actually doesn't stand the test of logic. Now Upsadi Goyen says, Okay, fine. I disprove the Trinity from uh, conceptually, or it's not logical. But what about Psukim? Like the Pasuk says, Ruach Hashem Dibebi, the Spirit. So they say, ah, this is part of God that's called the Spirit. It says Upsadi Goyen, an amazing thing, that the Ruach that the Pasuk talks about is created. We're going to get to this more of the Savior. That God talks to the Nevi'im through a created word or a created Ruach. It's not part of God. It's something that God makes in order to communicate with the Nevi'im. Okay, now we get to Perek Vav, where he deals with some questions. For example, how could it say Nase Adam? That implies that God is many. So he says, no, that's the royal we. We can use say Nase and the plural to be royal. What about Vayere Elav Hashem Mamre? There are three Anashim, Shlesha Anashim, and Avram addresses them as Hashem. So Absadigo improves Mitech the Parsha that no, not all three Anashim are called Hashem. When they're called Hashem, they, it really means the messengers of Shem, of Hashem, but don't take Vayera as proof of the Trinity. Then he further talks about the Christians in Perek Zion, and he says, regarding the belief in Yashka, and he says, there are three groups in that regard, and a fourth one that came out, developed recently. The first group believes that their Messiah, his body and his spirit, is part of God. Second group believes his body is created, and his spirit is from God, his Ruach. The third believes that his body and spirit are created, but he has another spirit from God. And the fourth believes that he is a prophet. So, the idea that things can't become from God that we had in the last discussion, he says the fact that nothing can be created from God. And to say that his body becomes godly, because a, the third idea that his body becomes godly because a new spirit attaches to it, that would make then everything that the Shechid attaches to is godly, and Sadiqan says that makes greater problems. And the fourth opinion that he's a Messiah, that he's merely a prophet who changed the law, that we'll get to in the third mimer when we prove that the law can't change. And the other mimer, which we'll get to in another week, where he talks about Biasamashiach. Okay. Now he gets to, now we're up to Perkhas, where he talks about what is our sense of God? If Hashem is the most abstract of all abstractions, how can he also be the strongest of the strong? In other words, now that we get to Hashem, we say we really can't 
touch and we can't there's no way to describe in a tangible way that we can relate to it he's in fact dissimilar from everything we know from all powers so how can he in fact be the most powerful says Sadia that the chacham the wise hashem made in this world a model for that and this is a concept that appears often in the sefer the absadi gain holds that there were things made to be a dogma to be a model for godly matters things made in this world to give us a sense of godly matters so he says the nefesh the nefesh the soul which is the most abstract of your body is powerful more powerful than your body it's what makes you do anything wisdom is more powerful than the soul because it controls the soul which is why wisdom he says is miyuchas to hashem in the pasuk hashem mechachma yosadevetz so the idea basically is saying, look, look around and we see even in the world that we are familiar with, those things that are more subtle are more powerful. And therefore, the most subtle thing, Kadesh is the most powerful. Then, Ksadigon goes into the point that God is incomparable to anything else. You can't consider him any substance. You can't have anything accidental about him. Um, he can't have any accidents. Accidents is a philosophical term. It means those things that attach to things, like whiteness. When something is painted white, the whiteness is called an accident. It's not the essential thing, it's something about it. Says Sadigoin, God can't be a substance. He can't have any accident because he created all substances and he created all accidents. He created all these qualities. And therefore, he can't be one of those things that he created. So again, you see this concept, Sadigoin's concept of Hashem is rooted in, in creation. Now, how could you say that God has no qualities? Don't we find these kinds of terms in the Nevi'im, saying Hashem is happy, he wants, he's angry? So Basadigan is going to explain these terms, but he says a principle over here. He says that whenever we build an idea, we build from the foundation up. And everything that it says in is built on this foundation, that God is unlike everything else. You don't build from the foundation down. You don't build backwards. So of course the foundation is that God is incomparable to everything else, and everything that the Nevi'im say has to be explained with that in mind. And now Absadi going goes into the 10 categories. What are the 10 categories? That's um, Aristotle said that there are 10 things that can be said about anything. And that is substance. And then there are nine categories that build on substance. You take a substance and you could talk about its quantity, quality, relation, place, time, position, state, action, or affection. Affection with an A. Being affected. Um, having affect. So, Ibsadigon is going to explain that none of these can apply to God. He says some people think God is a substance. Some people think he's actually a substance. That can't be. Some say he's a human. Some say he's fire. Some say he's air. Some say he's space. Another one says Ibsadigon, no, he created all these substances. Therefore, he can't be a substance. And additionally, says Ibsadigon, the Psukim make this point that God is not a substance. Why? Because there are five kinds of things that exist. Daimim tzameachai, kerchavim, and malachim. Mineral, plant, living things, stars, and angels. And he shows five circles that talk about God not being any of those. God is not a mineral, not like silver and gold. Can't compare God to a tree that you make uh, idols out of, etc., etc. Don't make God in the image of a living being. So he says, these psukim are coming to say that of the five categories of substances that we're familiar with, God is not any of them.
Now, what about that pasuk that says Hashem made man, but Selim Elikim, implying that Hashem does have a shape? Says the Pesach going, Selim Elikim means that Selim of man is the Selim that Hashem, that is Hashem's. That means same way we talk about a land being Hashem's, or a mountain being Hashem's mountain, which is a covered to that mountain, some connection that that mountain has and that land has to Hashem. So similarly, we're talking about man's tzelem, man's form being Hashem's tzelem, that's a covered to man, saying that his tzelem is the one that Hashem takes for himself. That's his shot in tzelem elokim. Man's tzelem is God's tzelem, it means it's the one that God took and is mechabed, is the one that God has a connection to. Okay, then it means other psukim deals that, for example, Eish Eichla doesn't mean God is an Eish, it means he's destroyed like an Eish. Now, then he shows that God cannot have a commas, can't have a quantity. And this he can be proved min ha-muskal, min from ideas from psukim and from what's received knowledge, the Messiah. Because the, the things that come together in space, that's what we're looking to created for. Everything is included in his quantities that he created. The psukim, that we said that God doesn't have any dimensions, you can't make him into three dimensional. I mean, I'm a kubal. What's the Messiah? Because the Metagame, Onklis, who is a Talmud of the Nevi'im and more Bucky in the Nevi'im, whenever there's an expression that indicates God being a gof, does not Metagame make a This is something that the Ram picks up too. Now, what about the Psukim that do use words of? Gashmis for Hashem. For example, Rosh, Ayin, Oizen, Peh, Ponim, and Leiv, and Me'ayin. Well, he's Zaktub Sadikoin. Well, there are various Pesukim that use these kinds of things for other things besides for Hashem, like Shamayim, Saprim, Kavoyit Kale. The Yam speaks, death speaks. If you're going to insist that these things are literal about Hashem, then you have to insist that they're literal about these things too. Now, by the way, the Rambam says Shamayim, Misaprim. The Rambam in the Murnu says, yes, the heavens do speak. Because they praise God. But Sadigoyan says that all these things are used, all these expressions are used, but it means metaphorically and um, poetically, you can say, and it doesn't mean to be used to mean exactly what the words, the, the intention of these Psukim is not exactly what the words mean. What's the point, says Sadigoyan? Why would Psukim talk in this way of Hachava? Why not? Why wouldn't the Psukim talk very exactly? Says Absadi again, because then you'd only be able to talk about very few things, and in order to be able to speak about everything, you have to be speak with this wide kind of imprecise way of speaking. And the Torah relies on the fact that in our minds and in the Psukim and in the Messiah, we know that God is not in fact the way he's described in the Psukim literally. What does the Pasuk mean with Reish? It means the covet of Hashem. What does the Pasuk mean with Ayin? It means hashkacha, etc., etc. Rabbi goes through each of these and shows again that the Aretz also is called Rosh, has a Rosh, and an Ayin, and an Oizen, and a Ponim. So everything is Derecha Avara. And he says again, just like those things that our senses know don't have these limbs, we know with our senses that the earth doesn't have a Konaf, doesn't have an Oizen, and doesn't have a Safa. So we know, therefore, that the Psukim are only speaking Derecha Avara inexactly. So too, if our Seichel can testify about HaKadosh Baruch that he doesn't have any of these limbs, we know that the Pesukim are talking about him Ha'avar. So clearly then, we know that language is willing to speak this way, and um, even though it's not exactly literal in the physical sense. Then Rebbe goes into a very important question. He says, well, 
How can we say Hashem is not in an Adam, not in the shape of a man? We have Pesukim that talk about the Nevi'im seeing a Demos Adam, seeing the shape of a man on a throne in a very specific way. So apparently Hashem is a man. Here Rabbi Sadegun says a big side that the Nevi'im are not seeing Hashem. They are seeing something created. Hashem created something out of Zohar, out of some splendor, out of light. The purpose of this creation is that the Navi should see this light and that will impress the Navi with the fact that the communication he's getting is coming from Hashem. That light, created light, is called Kavod Hashem. And that's what the Chachamim called Shechina. So Shechina, Kavod Hashem, means a light that HaKash Baruch creates in order that the Navi should be impressed with the fact that he's getting a communication from Hashem. And the proof that it's not Hashem himself, says Rabbi Sadi is because only Moshe spoke to Hashem, Ponim El Ponim. So anytime it says Kavod Hashem, it must be a Davar Nivra. If it just says Hashem, it means Kavod Hashem or Malach Hashem, even though it doesn't say it explicitly. Now we're going back to the 10 categories of Aristotle, up to Parakid Aleph, and he talks about um, quality, or up to quality, the third category. Um, God cannot have any accidents because he created all of them. Now, back to that point we were saying before, how does it talk about Hashem loving things and Hashem hating things? When it says Hashem loves Mishpat, what that means is he, cre- he commanded us to do Mishpat. So we, the way we describe that in shortcut is saying he loves it. When we say God detests something, what that means is really that he commanded us not to do it. But it's nothing about him. When we say God has a rotten in something, it means something is receiving good from God. Someone is receiving bad from God, we call that kas. What about relation? It says Ibsad, nothing can have true relation to Hashem because he doesn't take space, he's not Mugushim, he's Kadmoin, and he's unchanging. Then what do we mean when we say Hashem, Melech, and Avde Hashem? We mean Rebimus Vigidol. It's a way of saying God's greatness because the greatest human is the king. But there's no true Yachas. How do we talk about loving Hashem and hating Hashem? It's hash'allah al-derecha kavod It's not in any true sense, any true relationship of ava or sin. What about space? So he goes into the fact that God created all space, it doesn't need space, and therefore can't require space. You know, created space, preceded space, and therefore can't require space. Well, if he doesn't have space, what do we mean when we say God is in the heavens? Again, since I'm sadly going this idea, is der gedula v'reimemus. And what I want to mean to say is that Absadigun has this idea that things don't have to mean exactly what they say. It's a way of expressing greatness. Because the heavens are the highest thing, therefore we talk about a lekim bashamayim. It's a way of saying God is great. It doesn't really mean in any way that God is present in the heavens. In any way. And that's the key point. Absadigun says it's fine to say God is in the heavens even though it's not true at all because it's a way of being meremim God. It's a way of saying God is great because heavens are the highest thing. Similarly, Talking about Hashem being Shaykh and Basaykh B'nai Yisrael, or B'tziyayim. It really just means it's a way of covered to that place or the nation. It doesn't mean anything in a literal sense. Additionally, there was that splendor that dwelt in Tziyayim. Then he goes into time. God cannot be under time. He explains why. God cannot have anything, cannot have a Kenyan. That's the um, seventh category of Aristotle. <laughs> when we talk about Hashem having something, it's only, again, Covet. When we talk about God being the God of Avram or the God of the Ivrim, it's Covet the Hidr Latzadikim. He's really the God of everything. He can't have Kimo state because he doesn't change in states. He's not a Gof, and so on. What about now? We're up to the 
ninth category of Aristotle, which is action. So he says, even though we do call God active, we call him Isenpaya, we don't mean it in a physical way. Because physical things, the way they act is by acting within themselves. You move something by moving yourself. While God's action is through will. And therefore, it's not truly action. Everything that acts needs something to make with and space and time. And God is beyond all these. Therefore, we don't really call him um, action. And then finally, Rebsadi Gon gets to whether God could be affect. He says, God cannot even be seen. Although people think God could be seen because you have Pesukim that talk about Moshe Rabbeinu asking to see Hashem. What does that mean? Says Ibsadi Gon. He explains why people can't be seen because of the nature of how sight works. So it can't apply to God. And then um, Moshe Rabbeinu asked, And Hashem told him, You won't see my face, but you'll see my back, implying that God could be seen. Says Ibsadi Gon again that point that Hashem creates a splendor that he reveals to the Levim in order that they should know that what they're hearing is coming from Hashem. And when a person sees that, he says, I saw the Kavit Hashem. Or he could say, well, he sees Hashem, dropping the word Kavit, but really means he saw the Kavit created by Hashem to represent him. Now that glory, that splendid light, you can't look at directly. Moshe Rabbeinu was asking that he should have the ability to look at that light directly. And Hashem told him you could see the beginning. You could see Achorai and you can't see the front. The front is where it's the most splendid and the most blinding, and Moshe Rabbeinu was told, you can't see that, you can only see the Achorah. All about the Zoyar, the Kovid, Nivra, the Kovid Hashem, also called Shechem. Now we're up to Perikud Gimel, and Abzadi Goyen says, well, how are we able to have this concept in our mind, this concept of the Creator, if none of our senses ever perceived Him? He says an amazing thing. He says, just like in our minds, we have the love of truth and the hatred of, of falsehood, and just like we know in our minds that something can't be one thing and its opposite at the same time, even though that's nothing to do with our senses, so too Hashem. And what he's saying is, and then he brings a pasuk, Hashem alakim emes. What he's saying is that our God concept has to be different than our sensory concepts. It has to be like our concept of axioms, of truths, of logical truths. And God fits into that category of our of our mind now. Then he continues, he says, how do we think about God being everywhere? How could you think about such a thing? Interesting that he posits this idea God has to be everywhere. And he explains God is everywhere in the sense that God preceded all space and therefore space doesn't block him. And he says a fascinating thing. He says, just like uh, sound can go through walls and, and light can go through glass, so do we have to think about God being everywhere? Now, it's interesting to think about this because, of course, he said earlier that God doesn't take up space. I think he means to say, in our thinking about God, we have to think about him this way, as being everywhere. And, of course, now that we have, we're aware of uh, waves, even invisible waves, it's, of course, much easier to think about God in this way as being everywhere. How can we think about God as knowing everything that is and will be? How is it possible to know what will be? Says Ibsadi going, those that we know things by a cause, by them happening through our senses, and therefore we can't have knowledge till it happens. But God's sense is not through a cause, therefore we can know things even before they happen. And now Ibsadi going at the end of Second Mimer has a beautiful Arichos, wonderful things where he talks about once a person has the concept of Hashem in his mind, 
how he's going to get to Ahava and Yira and Bitachin. And this is something it's worth learning inside this on page Kufyud Beis in the Kafif edition. It's worth learning this inside just to get a, a sense of what a person's relationship with Hashem is supposed to be. I will paraphrase it briefly and give you some idea of it, but I highly recommend you see this inside. When a person reaches to this great matter through Eon and through proofs, his soul will believe in it and it will become part of him. And this idea will be in the in the walls of your mind, in, in the rooms of your mind. And he brings psukim for this. You'll be infused with this idea of God. And you'll always be thinking about it. And you'll be certain of it. Completely thinking about it all the time, dedicated to this idea. Whenever you travel, whenever you're on your bed, you'll be thinking about it. And it will be like these ideas are coming to you. Your mind will be talking to you about this. And you'll be more happy to think about this than anything else. And you'll trust in God. If God does good to you, you'll be happy. If, if, you, if, you, if you suffer, you'll hope for him to do good. The more you think about it, you'll have awe and pachad. And you'll be happy and you'll praise him. You'll love those who love him. You'll hate those who hate him. You'll praise him in a correct way, not with foolishness. You won't praise him that he does impossibilities. You'll praise him that he's eternal, that he's a truly one, that he's alive, that he's capable of everything, that he knows everything, that he created everything from nothing, that he does things for a purpose, that he does everything for the good. Again, that he doesn't change, that his malchus is forever, and that everything he does gets everything he wants gets executed, gets done, and that he should be praised for his good midas, and that wherever we praise him, he's above them. So this is a the PM that Rapsadigan writes to, to someone who's infused with this knowledge and how he's going to act towards God. And then he ends his Bainin. Get it into your mind. Focus it in your das. This is a key point. Don't be quick to judge really according to the words. Don't just use the words in Tanakh. You have to make a decision or a final idea of God according to the rules that we set forth. Realize that the words are only approximation or loosely, loosely being used. So this is the end of Sadiqa's treatment of Akash being Echad. We went through this Maimur, which of course has a great complicated philosophy. We went through it very briefly. Hope it gives you a sense of Sadiqa's proofs that Hashem is Echad, and what does it mean that Hashem is Echad, that he's unlike anything else, that he doesn't fit into any category. All the categories that Aristotle says we can talk about, all of reality cannot apply to God. The Psukim that imply otherwise are used. They're Ha'avara, Bikirov, just approximately. And this idea is the most important idea that a person could have and will change everything about the way he lives his life. Now that brings us, now that we established God, now we can talk about Torah. This brings us to the third mimer. We were going to learn about why there's the Torah, mitzvahs and averes. Why there are neviim that teach mitzvahs and averes, teach the Torah, how the neviim are proved to be the neviim, and that the Torah is eternal. And of course, 
Sadigoin always believes that all these things can be demonstrated through logic. This third mimer is ten prokim. Sadigoin starts off with an introduction. He says, all of creation is a toiva, is a favor and chesed that God is doing. God existed before creation, and then all of creation from nothing is all chesed. The greatest chesed that God did is that he made people exist. And then he gave people the potential to reach perfection. And that's what mitzvahs and avar is. Now, a person might say that why does God command a person? Wouldn't, why doesn't God just give person, give people the oisher that they can get through doing the mitzvahs? Why doesn't he give it to them without commands? The answer is because the seichel is mechaev. Anything a person get attains through doing something earns him double of what he would get just by receiving kindness bechesed. So the act of earning it itself makes a person deserving of great taif. Okay, so again, Parak Aleph now, Rabbi Goyen says, we'll start with the Nevi'im. The Nevi'im tell us that Hashem gave us a religion, mitzvahs and avers. Then, after we accept that from the Nevi'im because they did the miracles to make us accept that, now we can so we can think about it and we can see that speculation, Ion, dictates that there should be a Torah. Why? Why does Ion tell us that there should be a Torah? Because the Seichel is Mechaev, that anyone who receives a benefit should thank his benefactor and do, thing, do good things to his benefactor. Okay? God doesn't need anything from us, but at least we should thank him, praise him. Also, the Seich is Mechaev, that someone who receives from someone else should not be Mechaev, shouldn't rebel against him. Therefore, we shouldn't do that either, to God. Similarly, the Seich is Mechaev, that we shouldn't do things against each other. So that's also appropriate. And then there's a fourth category, which is that God should give us things through which we, to, for us to do good and therefore earn rewards. It means Rapsadigoyen has this idea that in, in Rapsadigoyen's theology, reward is very important and God gives us mitzvahs, as we'll see more, and God gives us mitzvahs that are, gives us good things to do in order for us to earn reward. And he shows that these are the four principles that explain all mitzvahs and averes. The mitzvah to know Hashem and to serve Hashem, that's the first idea that since God created us, we have to thank him. Not to do against him, not to be curse him, for example. Not to do evil to each other, of course, Geneva, etc. So those are the first three categories of mitzvahs. And then there's the fourth one. And by the way, as he explains, in the first, in the first category, you could add <coughs> standing in front of Hashem, serving Hashem. The second category, you not to swear by his name falsely, and of course, Third category is just be, to be just and righteous, not to kill, etc., etc. Now then, then there's a second kind of mitzvah, which is the fourth category before, which is what Sadiqoyen calls the mitzvahs shimias. <coughs> Those mitzvahs that in and of themselves, logic wouldn't dictate that we do them. So why does Hashem give us those mitzvahs? They're not sikhdiyos, they're shimias. Hashem gave us mitzvahs in order that we should get schah. Hashem chofetz aman sitkoy, yagdil, Torah v'yadir. And why are they good to do? Because God commanded us. Additionally, says Ibsadigun, if you think about these other mitzvahs, they have some purpose and Tam Kolshahu, some sort of time, logically. While the first three categories have great timing, logically. 
So Bzadi Goyen has this composite idea that the fourth category, the Mitzvah Shemias, are not completely arbitrary, but their main purpose is that we should do them and get Sechah. Okay, so in Parag Bays he explains why it's wise that there shouldn't be killing, why there shouldn't be znos, no one knows who his parents are, there won't be family, why there shouldn't be stealing, obviously why there's obvious ideas of the wisdom of these mitzvahs. Um, a big focus in Ibsad Goyen is falsehood, and here too he says it's wisdom, it's wise that falsehood should be wrong, and he says a very interesting thing. He says because when you face something that you know is false, when you have a, an idea and you know it's false at the same time, so you have two con- contradictory ideas in your nefesh, and you sense zorus, barichah kadvaram. You sense that there's something wrong, and that itself is the wisdom that tells you that lies are wrong. Now, some people, says Ibsad going think that what's right is what a person wants, and what's wrong is what he doesn't want. But that can't be, because if I want something and you want the opposite, then that thing would be both right and wrong at the same time. Now he goes on to the second category of mitzvahs. The shemias, for example, Shabbos, and not eating certain foods, and not doing beer. So again, he's going to, the main point is, the Iker Siba is for Hashem's command so that we should be rewarded, but they also have specific reasons. So he gives a reason for Shabbos, time to rest, and get Chochmah, and to add Tefillah, etc. Interesting that he does not say um, to remember creation here. And so on and so forth, he gives other reasons. He gives a specific reason for not eating certain animals, so we shouldn't think they're gods. Why? What's the reason for his nus with inc- the prohibition against incest? Because since a person is always around his family, if you'll be able to marry them, that would bring to his nus, and other reasons such as that. And he additionally, after giving these reasons for the mitzvah shimmies, he says, we always know that God's wisdom is above what a person could be masig, so these are only some kinds of reasons that we can give, but they're not, they don't capture the full picture. Then he brings a major question. Mitzvah Shemias and Sichlias, the first category, the Mitzvah Sichlias, right, the first category, those Mitzvahs that we can figure out and we know that they're right, why do we need Nevi'im for? Why do we need Shlichim? Why can't we figure out on our, with our own mind what's good and what's evil? And Rapsadigan says an amazing thing that we could in fact we could in fact figure out the mitzvah sichlius. it's appropriate that people shouldn't steal it's appropriate that there should be marriage but how do you do how are you kind of something how does something become yours how does a marriage get affected should it be with two of them should it be with ten all these kinds of details of the law which are necessary we would never reach an agreement about these details unless we had a shliach from God telling us what the deal, detail should be. So Psalm is an amazing thing. He's saying, Enechanami, the mitzvahs sechlios that are appropriate, the details of the halacha are not what the mitzvahs are about, essentially. But there has to be a very specific law. and Because otherwise, there won't be any law. And for there to be a specific law, you have to have a God-given law. And then, of course, for the mitzvahs shemies, those mitzvahs that are mainly important because God commanded, of course, we need a shliach to give that to. Okay, now we're up to Perak Dalet. So a shliach, the Navi is the shliach. Why, how do we know who is a shliach from God? Says Ibsadi going, since only God could change the nature of something. So if a Navi comes and changes something nature, it cha- turns a, a one element into another, or it stops the sun from moving, etc. 
or turns water into, into blood. He gives examples, of course, from Tanakh. If a person gives that kind of sign, we have to believe that he's coming from God. Because the reason why God gave him the ability to do this sign is to bring a message from God. So beside the God's understanding of Nisim is that, that Hashem allows a Navi to do a Nis as a proof that Hashem is giving a message to the Navi or through the Navi. And then he says an amazing thing. He says that you must say that Hashem would not do a Nis without telling us in advance that he's changing nature. And the reason for that, the reason why Hashem does Nisim, is to prove his messenger, and that we should believe him. But Hashem will not change something for no cause, because if we believe that Hashem could just change something without telling us, and without a purpose, without telling us in advance, in order to prove his, the veracity of the Navi, then we have no concept of truth. It means we have no concept of scientific law. Everything could just change. How do you know when you leave your house, that when you came home, the people are not different people, miraculously? And things like that. The answer is, says Ibsadi Goyen, Hashem does in fact honor the laws of nature and won't change things except for this purpose in order to verify his prophet. So the prophet then is a messenger from Hashem that Hashem entrusts with doing a nace in order to verify his, his shlichas. So Ibsadi Goyen says it's fascinating. He says, well, why is a human being a shliach? Why didn't Hashem make a malach being a shliach? Maybe a malach should teach us the law. Because of a malach, how are we supposed to know that he's coming from Hashem? How are we supposed to know that he's entrusted with Hashem's command? A malach could do a nace. We'll say, oh yeah, that's the nature of malachim. How is Hashem going to show us that someone is selected? The way to do that is to Hashem take a human being, a regular human being like everyone else, meaning he's, he's physical, and he really cannot do miracles, of course. And then that person comes and does a miracle and that tells us that he is coming with a message from Hashem. And that the explanation says upside again, that a Navi is the same as every human being and dies like a human being and gets sick like a human being because it's important that people shouldn't think that this person is some sort of supernatural person. He's not. The whole purpose, the whole point is that the miracle should be done in a way that makes it clear that there's a message being given to this Navi from Hashem. Okay. Now we're up to Perak hey, How does the Navi know that the message he's getting is coming from Hashem? So he says that the Navi has a simon, a pillar of fire, or a pillar of cloud, or a light. Remember the light, the Zoyar. Splendor. The Navi sees that, and that serves as a message to him, or as a sign to him, that he's coming from Hashem. So you see, you're going to understand that the whole idea of Navu, the whole idea of prophecy, is it's a way of Hashem giving things over to people. So what Hashem has to do is he has to, number one, make the person selected know that the message is coming from Hashem. And he has to make the person, the people to whom the message is directed know that that person is coming from Hashem. And that's the purpose of the miracles. Well, didn't people do miracles through magic? The Mechashvim? Says the Pesadik going, no, they didn't. The Pesadik says it was Balateyem, which means hidden tricks. Um, you could change water with dye, etc. But Moshe changed the whole Nile River into blood, and that proves that Moshe was a miracle. But in fact, there's no way to do um, these kinds of miracles except for Hashem making, affecting it through his Navi. Then he said, he's Kasha. And I want to explain to you why this Kasha follows from what he said till now. Yaina, the Navi, was chosen by Hashem to go to Nineveh 
and didn't. What wisdom is there in choosing someone who's going to rebel against Hashem? And his question is, his question follows from his concept of a Navi. Sadiqan's concept of a Navi is that Hashem is using the Navi as a means for his end. Well, how could Hashem then use a Navi that doesn't, in fact, serve as the means to the end that he's looking for? So therefore, Absadigoyen says that, in fact, Yoyin HaNavi did go to the people of Nimveh when Hashem commanded him to. The running away to Tarshish was that he ran away so they shouldn't get a second Nevuah. He therefore left Eretz Yisrael, so they shouldn't, the place of Nevuah, so they shouldn't get a second Nevuah. And then he eventually came back, of course, as the story goes. But there follows Rebbe Sadigoyen, who understands that the purpose of Nevuah is not, it's not about the Navi. The Navi himself is not the one who reached a certain Shlemos that he became a Navi, which rather Hashem uses the Navi. A Navi is one who Hashem uses to get his message to the people. And then in Perik Vav, or up to Perik Vav, and he gives a general idea of Sifrei HaKodesh, the purpose of Tanakh. He says Tanakh has three things, the mitzvahs and the azharis, the punishment, the reward and punishment for doing the mitzvahs and azharis, and stories about people who did good and received good, who did evil and received evil. So received evil. For example, he says that's the way to direct people. For example, if you tell someone, someone who's sick, you tell him, okay, don't eat meat, don't drink wine. Okay, that's one method of instruction. If you tell him, so that such and such doesn't happen to you, that's better. And if you tell him, like happened to so-and-so, that's the best. So that's the purpose in a nutshell. That covers what Tanakh is all about. However, says Ipsadi going, besides for Tanakh, you also need Messiris. You also need tradition. Because in order for people to believe what was and what's recorded, they have to believe in this idea of tradition. And people do believe in the stories. They believe in what they hear from their families. They believe what they hear from their ancestors. That's human nature. And Yerushalayim says the conditions under which a person is supposed to believe that kind of Messiah, which is an integral part of the Torah. Now he goes into the question of Bittal HaTorah, Perek Zayim. Can the Torah change, right? Hashem gave us the Torah, but maybe he'll change it. Maybe he'll change it for another religion, which he's going to get to. So he says that we have a Kabbalah Muskemes. The nation knows we have a Messiah in our people that the Mitzvah Torah will never be bottom. And that we heard this with Dvarim Mifurashim. And he says, I find this in the Torah because the Torah talks about many Mitzvahs or Bris Eilam. Torah Moshe which indicates that's forever. And here he says, maybe his most famous sentence from Emunus Vedeus, What makes us a nation is the Torah. That's what makes us a nation. And since the Pasuk in Yishayah says that the nation of Yisrael is eternal, therefore the Torah is eternal. So since the essence of our nation, what makes us a nation is our Torah, therefore if we are eternal, must be the Torah is eternal. Now why Rebbe says that our national essence is based on the Torah is actually something which is not clear. You can think about that and think our national essence is something fundamental prior to the actual mitzvahs and azharis. That's what Rebbe says. We're just reviewing this quickly. Okay. Then he talks about um, different arguments for the idea that the Torah could come to an end. For example, life comes to an end, so maybe the Torah can, could come to an end, and he rejects him. He goes through all these kinds of arguments. Um, you work on one day, you rest another day, so maybe you could have the Torah one day and not the next. People get rich and, and poor, things change in the world, so on and so forth. These kinds of arguments, comparisons between the possibility of Bitla Torah and other things, I won't go into all of them. And then he says one, which is the seventh, very interesting. He says, look, there's a Torah of Avram preceded Moshe. And Torah's Moshe usurped it. So why can't another Torah usurp 
the Nevuah of Moshe. He says the answer is, if you look at Teres Moshe, it's actually Teres Avram, with some additions, Matzis and Shabbos, because of certain occurrences. Like, if a person was saved on a certain day and he said, okay, I'm going to fast for the rest of my life on that day. That's not changing his religion. So he seems to be saying that the only religion, the only addition for Teres Moshe is Matzah and Shabbos, and that everything else preceded Moshe. I'm not sure we got that from, meaning that the, the others kept everything till there, I guess. And that Teres Moshe is just an organic development of expansion of Teres Avram. Then he says an amazing thing. Now we're up to Pechas. People say, why do we believe the Torah? Because there are miracles. But what if new miracles come and prove something contrary to the Torah? Said of Sanz again, I'm shocked. Because you know why we believe in Moshe? Not the great miracles. We believe in him and in every Navi because he calls us to something reasonable. And then we hear in a reasonable call. And then we ask for a miracle, and then we believe it. But if someone would, would, let's say, call us to something unreasonable or impossible, we would never ask him for a miracle. There's no miracles can't prove impossible. For example, if someone would come and say, God commands us to do Gneva, Znus, or other things that are patently wrong, we wouldn't even ask for a miracle because it can't be. And what if you would do a miracle? Says Ibsadi, it would be like someone brought, us a, brought a miracle to, to prove to us that we shouldn't love truth, shouldn't hate, hate falsehood, and things that are so similar, similar axioms that are Muscle reason that are obvious. Then Rabbi Sadigon goes into the idea that there are psukim in the Torah that suggest that the Torah come to an end. Famous question from Haifia Mehar Paran that uh, Muslims brought as proof to the Quran, and Rabbi Sadigon deals with those psukim and other psukim. Um, and then we're up to Perak Test. This is the end of. We're nearing the end of the Mimer, and here he talks about questions from the Torah that seem to suggest that the law changed. People used to marry their daughters before there were enough people. So he says that was a Rasha. How come Cain wasn't killed for killing him? Because there was no Adam and Asura. So basically he wants to make that the Torah, there's no changes in the law. How could it be that originally Adam could bring a carbon and then Aaron was Aaron and his children were dedicated to bring carbon, designated for carbonis. The answer is, it's not true that everyone could bring a carbon. There had to be certain people who were, who were appointed. And now these are the people that were appointed. How could, fourth question, how could a carbon be put on Shabbos? That's a change in the law. Says Ibsadigai, no, it's the opposite. In fact, it's just that the law can't change because since carbonis preceded the mitzvah of Shabbos, as did Mila, that's why carbon and Mila are the Shabbos because the law can't change. Hashem told Moshe, Hashem told Avram, Haleul Island home to bring it down. Is that a change? So he talks about that and other questions like that, which I'm not going to go into all the details. Okay. Now he goes into a more prepared yod. After he says, I dealt with the idea of Turk can't change, and I dealt with prophets, and I dealt with creation already and how God is unlike anything else, and so on, all the last we did to say for till here. He says, I want to bring here 12 matters that if I don't talk about them, people are going to have questions. So these are like 12 sort of random things um, related, of course, to specific mitzvahs, a little bit related to this to this Mimer, because it talks about specific mitzvahs, but also some general things. I'll mention a few of them. The Torah is incomplete because it doesn't tell us all the details. 
says the Psadi Goyim, well, besides the Torah, there's two other sources, Seichel and Messiah. Okay. Aren't there contradictions in the Torah? He talks about very specific contradictions, gives answers. Some strange things, things that seem to be impossible, shows the answers to those. What about Karbonis? Like random problems that people have out there. What about Karbonis? Karbonis is so strange. So he says, no, it's not strange because, because by sacrificing the blood, it's like we're, it, it teaches us a lesson and we're giving up our souls to Hashem. Why would Hashem leave the Malachim and dwell among men? Who says he left the Malachim? Why does Hashem need a Mishkan? Answer, Hashem doesn't need it. It's all for us. Why would there be a mitzvah of Mila? A person, when he's created, is not complete. No, completion is to remove anything that's excessive. So on and so forth. Other questions. Talks about Paraduma. Paraduma is so strange. It's metami tahayim, metahayim tamayim. says, no, there are things that are like that. There are foods that are good for one person and bad for another person. Fire can melt one thing and harden another thing. Sar Azazel. Are we doing a carbon Azazel? No, Azazel is a cliff. And one carbon is for the Kahanim. And one carbon is for Yisrael. And it's not what you think it is. not a carbon to shade. How does Egla Rufa work? We don't know who sinned. And we're doing bringing a Kapara. The answer is they sinned by not ensuring that this didn't happen. Then you ask the question. People might have a problem with the lowliness of B'nai Yisrael. Doesn't that prove that the Torah is not perfect? It doesn't give us perfection. Says Ibsadigoyin, if the people who keep the Torah would always be in power, people would say that they're serving Hashem for their good. So this proves that they're serving Hashem for the right reasons. The twelfth question that bothers people is how come the Torah doesn't talk about Schaiva Oinish in the next world? And for that, he's going to have the ninth mimer is going to deal with it. So this is the end of the third mimer. We talked about the purpose of Torah, why this mitzvah and Azara, how the Torah is established, and that's through the Nevi'im that are sent by God and are entrusted with miracles to prove that they're being sent by God, and how the Torah is eternal, and dealing with specific questions. And this brings us now to the fourth mimer. The fourth mimer, Psadigayin, is about the place of man in this world and free will. Psadigayin starts and says, we have to figure out what is the matar, what is the most perfect and the purpose of all creation. The purpose, says Psadigayin, is man. How do I know? Because he shows that the best of everything, the purpose of everything, is in the center. He shows that from the nature of, let's say, grain is in the middle of the leaves to protect it. And therefore, if the earth is surrounded by the earth, you have the geocentric model, I believe the earth was center, was surrounded by the heavens and the spheres. So the earth must be the matar, must be the purpose. Now, in the earth, the best thing is man. And indeed, the Pasuk says, Okay. So he says like this. Then up to Parak Aleph. The Nevi'im say that man is superior to the animals. They're psukim to that effect. And after the Nevi'im tell us this, which we accepted through their miracles, we looked into it and we find that indeed man is better than the animals because he has wisdom and he's able to do such wonderful things. And I'm going to describe some of the amazing things that man can do. And no other, none other than animal has this great Mila. Why does he have this? Why did God give man this special Mila to be so special? Is because man is the one who bears God's commandments and warnings. Now he has questions. We're up to Peric Bays. He has questions on this. 
How can you say man is so important when his body is so small and insignificant? He says a wonderful thing. He says, even though a person, the answer is, even though the person's body is so insignificant, his soul is wider than heavens and earth. Because in your mind, you can have everything. You can know everything. And you can even go to what's beyond everything, i.e. God. So man is not as small as you think. Well, why does he live so short? Because he has to, it's a gateway to the next world. Why is his body so weak if he's so special? So that's a mistake because maybe, God, maybe man should be a star or an angel. Rather, these elements that comprise the body is the most perfect. The, the, human, the human is the most perfect of what can be made from these elements. Anything better than that is beyond, is out of this world. It's not part of the, the, the world made of the four elements. Why does a person have sick? Why does a person get sick if he's so important? Well, it's good for him because it causes him not to sin and causes him to be humble before God. Why do all bad things happen to him? Because if a person wouldn't suffer pain, he would not understand the punishment from God. And that's why he has pain, as again, as a dogma, as a model. So God made pain, very interesting idea. The purpose of pain is that it should be serve as a model of the psychic pain or spiritual pain of Gehenna. Now, why does a person have so many bad meters like Tivus? Says They're good for him if he uses them well. Why is a person destined to great suffering in Gehenna if he, if, if he does wrong? The answer is because that parallels the great goodness that, he'll, that, that he can receive if he does right, and the two go together. As the Pasuk says, So basically, man is at the center, so why does he have all these things about him? And he answers them. Why do we sometimes kill people for, for Averis? That's good. The answer is that's good. Like a person whose part of his limbs became ill has to amputate them. And he says, similarly, similarly, if you think about these seven things that he spoke about, you could think about anything like that. You think about them deeply, and undoubtedly you'll find the wisdom in them. Okay. Continues by saying that man has yecholes and rotsen. Man has ability to decide and will, and therefore he's accountable for what he does and is commanded. And then he goes into the question of free will, up to Paragdalid, and he says that God does not in any way force man to do anything and the proofs to this are from sense perception from seichel from sukim and from tradition from the sense a person has a sense that you could speak or be quiet you could hold something or let go you don't feel anything stopping you to do your will from seichel because how could you be doing something and god doing something at the same time and why would god give you commands if he's doing it and how could he punish you? Etc. Etc. And from Psukim, Pasuk says, you should choose. And from the tradition, remember Psalm does not quote it much. He says, but here he does, because everything is in the hands of heaven except for Yerushimayim. So therefore we see from tradition too that man is not forced. Now he says, well, you might ask a question. If man is not forced to do anything, man is free will. How could God allow man to do something against God? How could it be things in the world that God doesn't like? So he says an amazing thing. He says, you know why people, Why can't you think about someone allowing something that he doesn't wish? Because the only time a person doesn't want something is if it's bad for him. But nothing is bad for God because he's not, no accident. Nothing happens to him. Things are bad because the, the reason why God rejects certain things is because they're bad for us. 
All of the Torah, according to Messiah Gaon, is about us. And therefore, not about God. He has nothing from it. And therefore, there's no kasha with the fact that there are things in the world that are against God's will. As the Pasuk says, Ha'oisi heim mach'isim. Then he brings the question of, doesn't God know in advance that a person will do something? So then, doesn't that mean a person is forced to do it? The answer is no. God's knowledge is not why they exist. God knows them according to their true being, including the fact that you choose chose them. If you would choose the opposite, then God would know the opposite in advance. But it's not God's knowledge which causes what they are. Okay, then he goes into why the, why their commands for a tzaddik, if Hashem knows he's going to listen, and he talks about how that gives him more schar, and that makes it more serious for him, and other reasons like that. Okay, and then he goes into similar questions about free will. For example, if a person is supposed to be killed, and then a person gets killed, and we say, oh, Russia killed him, wasn't the fact that he's supposed to be killed destined from Hashem? Cases like that, and he says, yes, a person's death could be destined, but that another person should kill him was not destined. Or that a person should lose money was his destiny, but that another person should do it was not his, was not that person's destiny. Um, he says a specific example from Avshalom. David HaMalach did a sin, and because of that, he was punished that Avshalom would rebel against him and do sins. He slept with David's wives. How could that be? Says Ibsadi going, no. The only thing that was destined for David HaMalach's sin was that those people would go along with Avshalom and Avshalom would win. But the sins of Avshalom were not predestined. And so on, th- different things like that. What about Pesukim that seem to say Hashem is controlling things, like Asher being his mate? That just means they have power. It doesn't mean Hashem is actually controlling them. And again, he has this idea that language, you have to understand Pesukim, you have to be able to recognize that language is not always so exact. And the Pesukim that sound like Hashem is making something happen don't actually mean that. Um, sometimes the Torah, sometimes the Torah talks about Hashem stopping someone from doing something like Bavi Melech. They stopped you, but it doesn't mean that Hashem stopped him in reality. Rather, he stopped him through warning him. Then the famous question about Pare, what does the Pasuk mean by Hashem hardening Pare's heart? That doesn't mean he's making him not do it. It's make, it means that he's giving him the power to withstand the suffering. Otherwise, Pyre would have would have fell apart from the Makis and would not have had the ability, the physical ability, to make his own decision. Okay. Other Pesukim today talks about Lomotas Enu Hashem Midochecha. The Ramam talks about this passage too. We won't go into the details of how I going to answer all these Pesukim, but his, his principle is that under no circumstances does God change or dictate what a person should do. A person could, Hashem could do something that will cause a person to do something. For example, a person could ask Hashem, Hashem that means Hashem should give him the clarity of mind and good mind so that he has understanding and then he could make his own decisions. Or Hashem could make the circumstances, for example, miracles happen so that people believe. But Hashem, but that's not a hechrech. That is in no way Hashem forcing him to do something and never does any sin come with exera from Hashem. So basically he says, um, right, under no circumstances something come from Hashem. There's a pasuk that people think that Hashem decreed a sin. That's not what it means. 
And again, he deals with that Pasuk. All the mistakes that people think it's a Hechrech are, should be, are corrected. And therefore, God has a good claim against his creations from Hashemas and Mary, and we have no Taina against him. So that's the end of the fourth essay. So what we learned so far, we went through creation, God, the law, and man's place in the world. Next lecture will be about, I expect to be about the next three essays. Maimar Hamishi is about sin and merit. Fascinating things about Tzaddik, Russia, and Tshuva. Sixth one is about the soul and death. And the seventh one is about Tchiyas and Mason.